Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Leah Plunkett to talk about her book, Sharenthood, Why We Should Think Before We Talk About Our Kids Online. Leah is the Associate Dean for Administration, Associate Professor of Legal Skills, and Director of Academic Success at the University of New Hampshire School of Law, and Faculty Associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Leah is an expert on online data and what happens when we share data about our kids that we maybe shouldn't have shared. She's really interested in how data might be used in the future against our kids or to help our kids and what we can do now to make sure that we're setting our kids up for success, that we're not putting things out there on the internet that could come back to bite them later on, and that we're having the right conversations with them about what they're posting And this isn't just about social media. It isn't just about Facebook posts. There are numerous ways that data is collected about us and about our kids all across the internet from all kinds of different apps, from all kinds of different services that we use and ways that we might not even think about. Really interested to talk to Leah about what those are, where the data is coming from, what it's being used for, and what it might be used for in the future. And of course what you can do about it today. Leah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sharon Hood, what the heck is that? And uh, why is it important? Why is it so important that you went and wrote this book that, ha- I mean, is very well researched? You spent a lot of time. Uh, there's an extensive notes section in here. This is not something you just kind of, you know, put, put together um, willy-nilly off a cuff. So wait, how did you get interested in this topic? What is it and why does it matter? I got interested in the concept of sharenthood or sharenting because I became a mom right around the same time that I joined the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University as part of their research team that focuses on youth and media issues, which includes privacy. And I was initially researching schools and school privacy, which is extremely important. But I began to realize, Andy, that as I was looking at what schools were doing and the way laws were changing that related to schools, that I was going home from my work and you know, posting on Facebook myself or looking at posts that I was receiving on my Facebook news feed. And I'm thinking, gosh, we parents, as well as grandparents, aunts, uncles, and other trusted adults in kids' lives, we are just putting a whole lot of information out there that is way more private and in some cases embarrassing than the schools are putting out in most instances. So then I got curious. And the Mm. term sharenting, or sharent or sharenthood, which was added to the dictionary this year I recently saw, is 
defined as the ways in which parents post about kids on social media. That is the more narrow and more common definition. The way I define it in my book is broader. I define sharenting as all the ways that not just parents, but also grandparents, teachers, aunts, uncles, coaches, neighbors, et cetera, all the ways that all of these adults transmit children's private information on digital technologies. So posting on Facebook or other social media, far and away the most obvious example. But Andy, anytime that we are giving our kids an educational app or using an Alexa or a Siri or putting a tracker on them or even giving them a watch that measures their steps, if that device or service is acquiring, storing, transmitting, analyzing, resharing their private information because of an, a choice that we as the adult in their lives made, then we are engaging in my book, literally and metaphorically, in sharenting. And it matters because it is ubiquitous. When I started researching this topic, it was actually a little bit hard to know what research terms to look up. Because sharenting was just something that, well, gosh, it's just a thing that people do. It's not really a a topic and it's certainly not really a concern. So, you know, why, why do we even give it a name? But because it's so ubiquitous, it was time to really drill down into it. And you point out that this can start even before birth. Uh, You know, we can post a picture of the ultrasound. Hey, wow, excited. It's a boy. Check it out. Or, uh, you know, birth certificate. Hey, wow, look, baby just born. Really exciting. And uh, it's totally natural. Uh, People have been telling all of their friends and family members excitedly about their newborns for a long, long time. But what's different now is that it is not just your friends are telling about it, you're also sharing that data with some other third parties that might be able to um, use it. And you point out here that, you know, even something as simple as that can can be problematic because a lot of websites uh, use private information like your birthday or your city of birth, where were you born, and um, things like that to verify your identity. And so uh, if the more of that information that starts just kind of leaking out and getting posted, um, the harder it is for you to maintain your own privacy later on. Or um, I guess, you know, these things that might seem benign or might seem like just a fun little thing to post. Well, I guess we don't often think about the consequences. And as reading through this book, uh, it really got me thinking about how a lot of those, those things that seem on the surface, like it's not a big deal, that there's more beneath the surface. I agree with that, Andy, and there can be more beneath the surface in a number of ways. First and foremost, when we as parents or teachers or grandparents or other adults are sharing this kind of information about our kids, bottom line is that we are likely not asking them for permission. And especially in, if they're, uh, if it's their ultrasound. Right. <laughs> and I was just about to say, you took the words right out of my mouth. We can't ask them for permission in many contexts. And even if we could, and I certainly encourage parents in age appropriate, developmentally responsible ways, you know, to have that conversation with their kids, they really may not understand in any meaningful way what they're agreeing to. So first and foremost, 
we are sharing information that is not completely ours. And look, I'm a mom of two kids. They're five and nine. I certainly think that my husband and I, as their parents, have the responsibility and the authority to be making the major life decisions that shape their upbringing. No question. But I also think that when it comes to sharing information about them, that we're not required to share. It's not as if the school is saying, we won't enroll your child unless you go on Facebook and share a Halloween picture or say what their favorite candy is, right? This isn't like going to the doctor and, you know, giving the date of birth so you can get a medical record. If my husband and I make a choice to share that, that is information that is unlikely to ever really disappear from the internet because nothing disappears from the internet. It's information that may seem innocuous now when we are thinking about our kids as they are in a static moment in time. But first, we may not actually have a comprehensive sense of just how innocuous it is. And if you think about communities where a parent might be, again, in the most well-meaning way, let's say sharing a Halloween costume picture with their social network on social media. Well, if their child is being bullied or is feeling vulnerable and another parent's child sees that picture or screenshots it or shares it, that's something that can make the child feel embarrassed. And also, Andy, we very likely aren't thinking about how that information might play out over time. So something that feels very innocuous or even cute to us when we are thinking about our kids as they are right now may feel very different to them when they are old enough to go online for themselves and be like, hey, mom, why did you tell the world I wet my bed till I was seven? Yeah, right. I really wish I could have kind of kept that secret. Yeah, exactly. And again, you know, I do think that almost all parents are coming from a place of good intention or or at worst, maybe just being a little bit careless, but it's not, no one is trying to make their kids feel embarrassed. No one's trying to set their kids up for a tough time in adolescence. In fact, we're really trying to do the opposite, right? We're trying to say, look how proud we are, or, you know, gosh, we're having a tough time in our house right now. Let's try to get help. And also, you know, we may be trying to validate ourselves or seek reassurance for our own parenting choices, which is something that's important. Yeah, is this normal? Too. Other other people having the same problem too? Because like, and it feels good when other people say, "Oh yeah, same thing. My kid's eight is still wet in the bed, <laughs> uh, or whatever." Like, uh, but yeah. I mean, there's something to that, you know. And then you kind of ah, oh, okay, good to know, <laughs> right? Um, so like, there is value in that, I think, and that. Um, is I think also what's hard about becoming about getting to the teenage years because in general parents seem not to want to share as much stuff as their kids get older because then it becomes more obvious that like okay this is they're developing like their own identity and maybe it's not really my place to be sharing with my friends about how oh hey just had this crazy problem with my just really had a big fight with my daughter last night and um you know uh, she just started her period and i don't know how to talk about it and maybe that's the not you know something to share but especially when kids are younger we don't necessarily even think about that i think because they're not really a person yet even they don't really quite have that like identity starting to form and it's easy to just say stuff just put it out there absolutely and i think the other thing to keep in mind about 
sharing information that seems innocuous or even heartwarming is that you know, if it falls into the wrong hands, and I'm not trying to be alarmist at, at all, this is by no means any way, you know, any way, shape or form the majority of interactions online. But if you think about it, if you're sharing information like exactly where you and your family live, or even like what your child's favorite candy is, or what they're scared of, you yeah. are putting out information about their physical whereabouts. You're putting out information about their likes, their dislikes, and things that can be manipulated or even abused in the wrong hands. And so that's a big concern. Another concern is that we don't have good transparency when it comes to what tech companies are doing with the information we put into them. Yeah. We do not have, I know Apple recently is coming out with a nutrition style label, but we don't have across the board, easy to read, consistent nutrition style labeling for the devices and the services that we're using. So when we as parents click, I accept or continue or whatever it is so that we can use an app or use a device we really don't know what kind of bargain we're getting into. Even yeah. if we do try to read the fine print and you know, I'm a law nerd, so I do read it. Good luck <laughs> trying to understand as a consumer what it yeah. means to say, we collect information from you, including the following types. It's never, oh, right. almost never- Which may be used for any of the following purposes. Exactly. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's wow, not- okay. It, you tend not to get a definitive list of information types or a definitive no. list of purposes. And well, because as a company, it's like our needs are going to evolve over the coming years. So we want to write this thing as broad as possible so that we don't even know what technology is going to, what we might be able to do with this data in five years. Um, and so we want to write our user agreement in such a way that as our technological capabilities evolve, evolve over the coming years, we'll be able to evolve with it and we'll still be able to use this data down the line. Totally. And look, from a perspective that is innovation focused and vendor focused, that makes total sense. And if totally, I right. if I were counsel for one of those companies, I would be telling them the same thing. I would write it the same way. Yes, as broad as possible. Yeah. But where where I come at it as a parent and then as a researcher yeah. is we ultimately, if we're thinking about multi-stakeholder interests, right? So if, if you're the head of the startup or you're counsel to that tech company, of course, your obligation at that point is how do you maximize flexibility in the data that you are acquiring because your needs may evolve, your opportunities may evolve. But when we're taking a multi-stakeholder perspective and thinking what is best for our kids and our families, and even more broadly for society, it is not to have a Wild West approach to personal data. Yeah. We, I'm going to come out and say, I don't think that we, and we, of course, you know, it's not going to be every single person, but maybe majority approach, we don't want to live in a society where what opportunities you have, be it an educational opportunity, a career opportunity, a credit product opportunity. We don't want to live in a society where things that you did or that happened to you from the time of even before you were born can be aggregated, analyzed, acted upon by companies over which you have 
no insight and certainly no control when you think about the kind of autonomy and room for individual liberty and individual trajectory that characterizes the United States and many other countries, but I'm, I'm focusing on the US for, for the moment. Um, those aren't the values that underlie our liberal democracy. So I do think that all of us, including ultimately the tech companies and the lawyers writing the agreements on behalf of the tech companies should be really concerned about this from an ethical perspective. Here's a question, parents. Have you had to have a talk with your teen about their body odor yet? We just came across a tip I think a lot of people are going to want to hear about. It's called Prep You Products. They have all-natural personal care products for the teen guys in your life. This matters because Prep You is on a mission to make sure they provide the best all-natural deodorants, body and face scrubs, as well as other natural ingredient-based smell goods like body powder and body spray. Whether your teen showers or conveniently forgets to, Prep You has what they need to keep clean, smell fresh, and do so with safe and effective ingredients that modern guys care about and parents appreciate. So check out Prep You today at prepuproducts.com and take a look at their assortments of better for you personal care products for guys. That's prep, the letter U, products.com and use Teen Talk at checkout for 30% off your first order. Again, check out Prep U products for the best in all natural personal care. I think it's not a question of if. I think this is going to happen. This is already happening. This is what machine learning does really, 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 really well. Collect a lot of data, get a huge data set, and be able to predict outcomes in the future. And the bigger the data set gets, the better it gets at predicting outcomes. If we can collect a bunch of data, uh, as you point out, maybe your kid's using learning apps at school. Maybe they're using, they're playing games and they're, you know, there's data about their reaction times and how good they are at things, to, just in games that they're playing on their iPad, whatever. Well, all of this data is cheap. Uh, it's not that hard for someone to gather all of it together and then to put that into a model and start predicting how well they're going to do in college, whether they would be good at this kind of a career, whether they'd be good at that kind of a job. And as soon as you get some kind of validity where you can actually demonstrate that above and beyond their SAT scores, above and beyond their high school grades, above and beyond their essay that they write to get into your college, this data can give us a better idea of who is going to succeed in your college. That's worth so much to a college. They're going to buy that data. It's just going to happen. Employers, well, who should I hire? It, it costs a lot of money to train a new employee. It, if you're hired, it takes a year and a half for an employee to like really get to the point where they're productive. If I'm a company and I'm going to invest in hiring a new employee, it might be worth spending $10,000 to hire a data company that's been collecting data on everybody for their entire life that can tell me out of these 10 applicants that I have, which one has the best potential. That just makes economic sense and it's going to happen. And the data that seems innocuous that your kids are putting out there, that you're putting out there with just little posts that seem like not a big deal, just little things that you do, pictures from your family vacation, all of that stuff, we need to think a lot deeper about before we just put it out there, I think, because 
we have no idea what the capabilities are going to be in 20 years when your kids start becoming adults and are out in the world. And we have no idea how this data might be used against them or to help them or anything. And um, it's better to be cautious and to think about it and to be aware, I think. Not, not that, you know, we have to go disconnect from the internet and live in a cave in the backwoods somewhere, but just that I think we need to be a lot more conscious. I am 100% with you. And what you said, Andy, made me think of two things. The first is on your excellent point that we don't know what is going to happen with this five, 10, 15 years. So no sooner did Sharon Hood come out last fall from MIT Press than I had to start keeping a list. And you can see it here. I'll show you on the screen. This is the copy I always use for talks. And I started keeping <laughs> like my handwritten notes. So I started keeping a list in the inside front cover of all the things that happened after the book went to press that I wished yeah. I had been able to include. So there'll be in a sequel. But one of the big ones was the New York Times ran, I think it was actually a cover story in the hard copy edition, but a prominent story last fall. And the headline was how photos of your kids are powering surveillance technology. And it was a wonderful piece of investigative journalism that looked at the ways in which photos that parents had posted of children as well as other photos on social media had been used to train surveillance technology. And the journalist said, who could have possibly predicted that a snapshot of a toddler in 2005 would contribute a decade and a half later to the development of bleeding edge surveillance technology? And the answer is that all of us paying attention right now in 2020, we don't have a crystal ball. We cannot predict exactly what the uses will be, but we should be on notice to sound lawyerly. It will be used for something. <laughs> exactly, Andy. And then the other thing your point made me think of is there's an awesome book by Kathy O'Neill, Weapons of Math Destruction. And it's, it's just a wonderful book. And one of the things that Kathy talks about in here is all the ways in which the hiring industry, so the kinds of tools that you were talking about, right, to try to help employers predict who is going to be a good fit, in whom should I invest resources and training. And she found in her book that in 2016, which is now several years ago, it was already a $500 million industry, the, the products and services to help assess fit, and that 60 to 70% of adult applicants for jobs in the U.S. were taking some sort of employment fit assessment. And these are you know, largely online at this point. And so to then say, okay, when our kids' cohort is coming into the jobs, they are yeah. going to have so much more of a data trail. Yeah. That can just be folded in. So it's, you know, the Why wave not? of the future, right? Just so add you... it to the picture. It's exactly. another thing to consider when you're hiring people. Not that it's going to be the only thing necessarily, but the more accurate it gets, honestly, I mean, it might get to the point where that's all you need to know because it it's more accurate than any thing that you could possibly get from doing an interview with somebody. It might get to the point where it's like you don't even need to get to have an interview with somebody because people can lie during interviews. People can act really good at stuff when they're not really, but the data doesn't lie. And we can look back to your 
uh, all these apps you used to use when you were a kid. And we can see how you really spent your time, uh, you know, in high school. We can see who knows, right? We can see what your actual propensities are for all kinds of different things. And we can just say, hey, who's actually this person I think makes a lot more sense than this person. And we have to be really vigilant because you're right that you can get certain objective realities from data that you can't get from more subjective interactions like interviews. But we also have to be very on guard that the ways in which the products are set up into which the data is being entered and the ways in which data is being extracted and then analyzed and shared are free from built-in bias because very often they're not. And so there's the more sort of glasses half full type of view of the use of data in hiring or other contexts to say, gosh, it can create a more complete, more well-rounded, more objective picture. So let's say that I don't interview well, but it turns out you look at the data and I am just a whiz when it comes to spreadsheets, right? I'm just, I, I'm not actually, but um, I have colleagues <laughs> who are, so it all works out. Um, but you know, the, the data can tell you that. So then I get yeah. the opportunity that I would not have otherwise gotten right it's a two-sided coin because also it's like if you go into uh if you hear this interview and you go into like wow um uh alert mode i need to stop my kid from using all apps and from doing the learning things at school and from everything because that data can be used against them well that's not necessarily the point either because if i'm an employer uh, 20 years from now looking who to hire and your kid has no data trail whatsoever then that doesn't really look too good to me either i'm going to go with the one who i for sure can look at and say yeah, the data shows this person is going to be a good fit with 99% accuracy. You're hired. So yeah, it's it's a very, very deep issue. There's not, um, you know, a simple solution, I think, which makes it really, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of sides to consider. But I think we need to be considering them is the point. And like the point that you make in here, you know, we need to be in- including our kids in that conversation and just talking to them about all of this too. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, more and more schools are teaching some form of digital literacy or digital citizenship. So how you discern fact from misinformation or disinformation and how you engage online. And the digital world is one where many parents, certainly Gen X and above, I'm the tail end of Gen X, so I'll out myself and say it's certainly true for me. You know, I did not have email until I went to college. I did not have a cell phone until I graduated from college. I had a very funny, somewhat disheartening exchange with one of my law students a few years ago. She saw a whiteboard up on my wall and I made some comment about how, yeah, you know, now I use those for to-do lists or planning. But in college, of course, it was where we all left each other notes. And she said, oh, you used a whiteboard for something that wasn't decoration. And I was like, yeah, how, like, how are we supposed to find each other like you would just like walk by someone's room and if they weren't there you'd leave a note that's like in the dining hall right it's like you couldn't you weren't texting we weren't even particularly IMing because as I said I'm the tail end of Gen X and so I do look back on that I'm like how did we even know where we were but um maybe we didn't I don't know maybe there's still someone wandering around the dining hall being like where is everyone um but you know we as parents don't have as much digital sophistication sometimes even as our children do and we certainly haven't had the formal education in it and so it's a weird area where i'm not saying that we should give our kids veto power over the decisions we as adults make about digital life because if i did that my nine-year-old would get to play Fortnite and not go to school which 
not things that are going to happen right now. Um, but, you know, Andy, we, we do have to be listening to and including our kids and also modeling for them that even in those situations where there's no right or wrong answer, we are having mindful values-based respectful discussions and internal deliberations about it. Yeah, we're being very mindful, thinking about it before we just um, click accept, I do, (laughs) download now. We're here with Leah Plunkett talking about your teen's data, and we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. There's such a high level of uncertainty and anxiety for parents right now that some of it is very much, as you said, risk avoidance and confrontation avoidance. I think that it's not a coincidence that the rise of app culture, of device culture, is coming at a time when we are also seeing this growing insecurity and uncertainty among parents about the broader world that we live in and about our children's trajectories. And we are teaching them to then by extension, both accept that surveillance state, but also to be less self-reliant. It was in, I mean, it's interesting. I had an exchange with my son. I will share into this. Um, <laughs> when it, it, was, it was over a year ago now, he really wanted to be able to walk to school by himself. And we do live in a, in a really safe, really community-minded neighborhood. The school is in walking distance, but he, we did not think he was old enough to do that. And he said, well, just put a video camera on my backpack so you'll know where I am. And I said, first of all, no one should be spying on you, including me and dad. And second, buddy, I'm not concerned about where you are. I'm concerned about you're looking both ways before you cross the street. And so it's not that everything will be okay if I know where you are. It's that you have to get to a point where I can trust that you know how to take care of yourself. And then I started to go over with him. I said, you know, if, if you ever were, you know, out in the neighborhood by yourself and a problem happened, what would you do? And he kind of went back to, well, if you would give me a phone, which we haven't. Yeah, I'll just call you. (laughs) You know, no, it's not the answer. Right. Like you, you might not be able to reach me in time. Like if you were ever in the neighborhood by yourself and there was a problem, look for a police officer, run to a neighbor's house, hear all the people we know, make a lot of noise. So, and I had this moment like, (laughs) kind of like the basic stranger danger stuff. He's like, oh, I'll just text you. No, you will not. Like, I can't get there. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.